Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Edward Muir for a conversation about Venice during the Renaissance period. Dr. Muir is Clarence L. Versteeg, Professor in the Arts and Sciences and Professor of History and Italian at Northwestern University based in the U.S., He has written many publications over his career, including authoring a couple books as examples, Civic Ritual in Renaissance Venice, which was published by Princeton University Press, and The Culture Wars of the Late Renaissance, Skeptics, Libertines, and Opera, which was published by Harvard University Press. Welcome to call, Edward. Thank you. Nice to be here. Okay, so we're chatting about uh, Venice today in the Renaissance uh, period, and... uh, uh, going to uh, understand better, you know, the the culture and its commerce and its governance during this period of time, uh, etc. I had a really enjoyable conversation um, a couple weeks ago with retired professor of uh, at Carleton University, Dr. John Osborne, and one of the things that we chatted about um, the the episode was focused on Venice in the Middle Ages, so before the Renaissance. Uh, one of the things we chatted about was the uh, demarcation of Venice uh, during the Middle Ages. And it was um, quite large, relatively speaking. It wasn't just a city, but it had a lot of territory uh, in, that, um, in the Mediterranean um, during the Me- Middle Ages. So when we get to the Renaissance period, when we're coming up to the 14th century, um, can you describe, please, what the uh, demarcation of Venice uh, was by that point in time? Well, you, you've got the city, obviously, in the lagoon, okay, and and a little bit of territory around it. It's called the, the Dogato. But this main uh, territorial, really, empire by that period stretches down the coast of Dalmatia, which is now, of course, Croatia and uh, Slovenia, and Albania, uh, and then a, a, a bundle of Greek isles that includes um, uh, Crete, uh, which was very important, and, um, and and some places on the on the mainland, so that they could basically hop from port to port, from Venice all the way to Constantinople or other places in the Middle East. Um, so it and that goes back to really the 13th century when they grabbed a lot of a lot of these these places and they, they held on to them really into the 17th century so it's a very important connection uh with the greek world and the slavic world of of, uh, of dalmatia basically then in the 15th century they began to add on to that empire uh territory in italy particularly to the north uh, and a little bit to the west and the east of Italy, of the city of Venice, so that it would go right up to the border of modern-day Austria, uh, Slovenia on the east, and in the west, almost as, you know up to Switzerland practically, uh, and, and Milan. So it's a quite substantial territorial empire in two parts, the sea empire and the land empire. Okay, yep. So in this period, there it sounds like there still is quite a uh, expanse of uh, territory that exists. So for this conversation, so that we circumscribe it a bit, because obviously we're going to keep the conversation under an hour in in total, are you okay if we focus predominantly on the actual city of Venice, and then 
will loosely go in and out uh, as needed because knowing the the more broad territory, I think is is useful for con- for context. Sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Let's okay. Stick to All right, sounds good. Okay, so uh, in the uh, Renaissance period, um, what would the type of governance structure that uh, would have existed in this period of time in Venice? Well, Venice is formally a republic, uh, right? And it's probably uh, from 1297 when it establishes the kind of rough constitution that it had to 1797, it has pretty much the same form of government. Uh, It's an, an aristocratic form of government in the sense that you had to be born into the ruling class to hold public offices. But uh, they uh, they have a, a, a kind of prince called the doge, but he's it's mm-hmm. not hereditary, and his powers are very limited. So it is for that long period probably the most stable and long-lasting republic, and it has a series of councils. It even has what they call a senate um, that uh, f- fulfill the functions of day-to-day government, pass legislation, uh, judge cases. Um, and decide whether to go to war or not, settle taxes, all those, all those kinds of things. Now, members of that ruling class uh, hold those offices, and they are elected to those offices um, and are in many ways obliged to follow what we would see as a set of constitutional principles. Although in Venice, like anywhere else, there's some wheeling and dealing and some corruption and buying and selling of votes. It's, it's not entirely clean, but it contrasts strongly to the kings and princes of the rest of Europe because it is, it is this kind of interestingly mixed republic. Okay, and I know we're going to keep the conversation predominantly on the city of Venice, but I am curious, um, so would there have only been one doge in the Republic, or were there several doges scattered throughout the Republic reporting back into a central authority? Well, there would, no, there really would be only one doge. He's really the head of the whole state. Well, okay. we'd see the head of state, but there are uh, what are called rectors uh, in, in English who are representatives of Venice outside of the city in all these various territories. There is what is loosely called a doge in, in Crete, but he's not really autonomous in any way. So um, uh, doge just is a, a Venetian dialect term for, for duke, um, but it's not an hereditary job. So it's kind of interestingly uh, uh, Republican use of, a, of an aristocratic title. Okay, and perfectly fine to summarize uh, this, this answer, because um, I'm sure there's nuances to the, the process, but how was a, a doge um, selected? Oh, <laughs> selected through a very complex... I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> you must know about all this, sorry, it's got 11 steps that alternates between uh, basically sort of lottery, sorticians, casting lots, and elections. Um, so it comes out of the Great Council, the biggest group of, of uh, office holders in Venice, and they go through this complicated process, all in an attempt to prevent uh, buying and selling of votes and corruption, but it never seems to have worked because only members of a small group of families ever managed to be elected doge. So somehow uh, 
all these protections were not always uh, followed entirely. And they're so worried about corruption that they have a little boy who uh, counts all the ballots. Um, and supposedly he is uh, incorruptible. Um, so that's the complicated story. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, eventually it, it works out pretty well. They have to, the dojo, when he's elected finally, has to uh, basically swear an oath to um, a set of principles that he would follow. Um, and it, it's rewritten every time uh, based upon his predecessor's foibles, mistakes, and acts of corruption. And so he has to swear not to do what his predecessors have done. Um, uh, and that ties his hands pretty, pretty significantly. Okay. Could a uh, woman ever serve as doje in this period of time? And uh, could women ever vote on the um, eventual doje? No. There's what is called the dogaresa, who's the spouse of the doje. Um, And one or two of them exercise a fair amount of influence, but they have no constitutional power at all. They just, you know, get to live in the ducal palace because they're the spouses of, of the doje. So, no, women are completely excluded. Okay. Uh, So early Renaissance uh, period, so the 14th uh, century, what would the city of Venice have most been known uh, for? And and you can answer that from a um, a perspective of its citizens, like what would they what would they know themselves for? Or you could answer it from a perspective of people not in Venice, but familiar with, with Venice. What would, what would Venice have most been known for in that early period? Well, I think, uh, for, let's say outsiders, foreigners, as they would call it, would have been best known as uh, a, a major thriving commercial capital uh, with a seaborne fleet that had direct connections with um, the, uh, the Middle East in particular and okay. with, with transporting the, the riches of Asia into Europe and, and vice versa. So that's what it was mainly known for. It had a big fleet, uh, which in the Mediterranean was ex- was extremely powerful and important. Now, among the population, I think what it was known for was being fairly stable. You don't find a lot of um, class violence in Venice like you would find almost everywhere else in the 14th century. Because, um, I mean, the 14th century is the period of, of the Black Death and, and uh, major economic disruptions. Um, and so there's a lots of revolts in other places. Not in Venice, though, interestingly enough. And mm-hmm. that may be largely because uh, the working classes didn't have political rights, but they had a, a bit of a piece of the action in the sense that they had pretty strong guild structures which protected their, their uh, incomes in many ways. Okay. Um, so you touched on, uh, commerce there, and if we could use, um, modern day, uh, like terminology around countries, and uh, of course, many of these countries probably didn't, weren't constitutionally countries yet. Um, but if we can use modern day countries or territories that we would understand in modern day terms, what were some of the, the common, uh, regions or countries that Venice was trading with, uh, in this period of time? Well, um, important for them would have been uh, what is then Constantinople, now is Istanbul. That's mm-hmm. its most important trading. And the, 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 the Ottoman Turks uh, 
take over Constantinople in, in 1453. Um, and so it's no longer officially a Christian city. It's a Muslim city. But Venice is, uh, has an important uh, uh, commercial uh, you know, fortress there and commercial representatives there. That's by far its most important place. Other okay. Italian cities are important. Uh, then also places that are now in uh, um, Slovenia and Croatia along the coast mm-hmm. are important. Now, Venice uh, also fought the sails into the Black Sea, and so it would be in you know ports in what are now uh, in, in Russia. Um, and it's probably the Western Mediterranean is less important um, but they do. There are Venetian fleets who get to London and to uh, Bruges in uh, uh, Belgium and to Amsterdam in the Netherlands and to uh, ports in, in France as well. So it's 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 a European based um, trading system. I should leave out uh, Cairo. Cairo is also mm. quite important for Venice. Okay. After the. Um exploration were probably uh, or when it started the explorations um you know to uh south america and in north america and the caribbean and um these explorations that were being done by the portuguese and the spanish etc um how did that and, and a lot of that uh started in in this period for the most uh, for the most part how did that affect venice well, at first, it's it, it's a shock. They do get new. They do receive news about Columbus's voyages uh, fairly quickly. I mean, within the year, they they know something about what he's done. Of course, Columbus thought he was in Asia. He thought he was in in India uh, or China. Not in, he didn't realize it was a new world. Um, but the, the the Portuguese who were sailing around Africa. That's that's pretty scary because that is going to Outflunk, outflank the Phoenicians' access to the Asian markets. Now, the, the paranoia that that begins to seep into the Venetian consciousness isn't really matched by any significant decline of trade for nearly a century. It's not until the 17th century that they feel the effects. Mm. Um, and what there is is a kind of gradual change in the economy from international trade in luxury goods to developing the regional economy in foodstuffs and uh, manufacturing silk and woolen cloth in the, particularly in the in the landed empire of venice nearby so uh, venice becomes a, a silk manufacturing city uh, in the 16th century in part in response to all of that so um it, it takes a while for the uh, economic effects to really Do you happen to know um, why silk, of all the things they could manufacture, in your research, was does anything stand out that made it perhaps convenient for them to manufacture silk? Uh, could it have been by happenstance? Was it some entrepreneur that you know happened to this happened to be the person's bailiwick and a big company got started? Do you, any any sense why uh, silk was uh, they became a, a, a dominant manufacturer of? Well, the, the profit, first off, the profit margins are huge. 
Um, okay. And uh, the quality of, of Chinese silk was such that uh, everybody wanted it. You know, a, a small uh, um, roll of black Chinese silk could pay for an entire expedition with massive profits if you got it from Beijing to London, for example. And the Chinese were aware of that. There was silk manufacturing going on in Constantinople, and everyone is trying to protect the uh, that industry so that others don't get it. Venice manages to probably buy someone that they bribe to defect from uh, Constantinople get an expert in silk manufacturing to come to Venice and set it up. And um, the, the, what you have to have, of course, are silk worm, worms and uh, mulberry bushes to uh, feed the worms to, to make the silk manufacturing go. But the profit, get it working, but the profits are just astronomical. Uh, by far and away, the most profitable thing you could do, far more profitable than, say, you know, transporting opium, which was also coming in from the Middle East or pepper or some other things. So that's the incentive. Mm. It's obviously easy to transport. Mm -hmm. uh, it doesn't cost much to do it. Uh, and the market is, a little, you know, an elite market, uh, but particularly in a market among uh, Northern European elites who want that shiny silk clothing. And so that's, that's, that's the incentive. And I think that's probably how it happened. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the person that you described that that person's not necessarily known, but that is that's like a theory that the person could have come from Constantinople. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, there's some loose evidence that they that they uh, managed to smuggle somebody in. I don't know the person's name. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not even sure that story is true, but they needed to have somebody who knew the technology in order to make it work. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify. Okay. Um, so, uh, and we'll get into some other um, kind of areas like religion and uh, culture and the arts uh, sh yeah. shortly. Um, but I want to go to another comment that you that you mentioned that I think is uh, important to this conversation was the fall of Constantinople in the 15th century. Mm -hmm. So after the fall occurred, uh, how did that affect uh, Venice one way or another? Well, uh, you know, the question is, is Venice going to be uh, itself lose its own colonies to the Turks? And there is a back and forth um, uh, series of engagements with Turkish fleets, Venetian and Turkish fleets fighting throughout the 15th century. Uh, Venice loses uh, some of these battles. Mm -hmm. big, big battle in 1499, they lose. They don't lose a lot of territory, some. Okay, so it's initially um, a kind of an antagonistic uh, relationship. But at the same time, uh, Venetian traders are doing their best to cut deals in Constantinople. And there is uh, an establishment, a Venetian establishment there that uh, actually acts as a court for uh, disputes among merchants. And so Christian merchants from all over uh, the Christian world from all over Europe go to this Venetian court in Constantinople when they have disputes, uh, commercial disputes of whatever sort. So it has a, it, it's, it has a kind of a mm. cooperation and competition going on at the same time, um, and this, this this kind of sense of threat persists throughout the 16th and 17th century. 
There's a great Venetian victory uh, against the Turks in, the, in the, at Lepanto in, in 1572, and then uh, Venice eventually loses its major colonies in the Greek islands in, this, in the middle of the 17th century to the Ottomans. So it takes, you know, it's, it's 200 years of battling uh, before they lose everything. Okay, and to clarify the, that court um, with the time period, was that uh, was that a uh, Ottoman or a um, rather a uh, Byzantine court, or was that an Ottoman court? Like, was it before the fall no, or after been, the fall? It would, been, it would have been a Christian court, which would then negotiate with the uh, uh, Ottoman court. So it's run by what's called the Bailo, the Italian mm-hmm. Venetian guy. who's was called the Bailo. He would speak Turkish and probably Greek. Um, and would help settle those disputes. Uh, he didn't have an official role in the Ottoman Empire, uh, had a kind of unofficial role as a mediator. Um, and then um, there are um, a, a group of translators who are called Dragoman, who mm-hmm. translate between uh, uh, Venetian and, uh, and Turkish, and sometimes they know Arabic as well. Um, and those people um, often acted as kind of commercial agents as well as and brokers, as we put it in modern days, as uh, court interpreters. Hmm. So uh, there, those are the sort of people betwixt and between these two, these two systems. Interesting. Yeah. Sound like a, an elaborate system. Um, there it was, yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so... After Constantinople fell in 1453, um, how did the government structure in Venice change, if at all? I don't. It didn't change much at all. No, there's no particular what we would see as a kind of constitutional change at all. There is a gradual. Um, contraction of power in the hands of a, of a fairly small council called the Council of Ten um, that grasps more and more power because their responsibility was for state security and obviously uh, the presence of the Ottomans on their borders is an issue of state security. So one counts that group, the Council of Ten, exercises more and more power. We, we would see it kind of as extra constitutional power. And every once in a while, uh, several times in the 16th century, there's um, political controversies and even revolts against that council, but it continues to have uh, probably the most important uh, political uh, influence, precisely because it can operate secretly and because it's concerned with uh, matters of state security. Okay. And to clarify uh, a point in um, history before this point in time, was Venice was under Byzantine rule at some point in time, right? Uh, right. Under the right. under Constantinople, and yeah. So if so, when did that uh, stop? Oh, this is, so it is a it is an outpost of the Byzantine Empire, mm-hmm. the Greek Byzantine Empire. Uh, the Doge was originally back in the eighth century, ninth century, um, a Byzantine official, that uh, the reins of Byzantine power loosened considerably by about the year 1000, when Venice starts mm. acting 
autonomously really uh, conquering other cities. Um, so that's the official connection. But then in 1204, in the Fourth Crusade, Venice with a group of Frankish knights actually conquer uh, Constantinople. They conquer the Byzantine Empire. They, were, they had gone there primarily to rescue it from uh, um, Muslim incursions and uh, instead take over the place. And they, uh, Venice gets what's called a, a quarter and a half a quarter of the Byzantine Empire when they split things up with these Frankish knights. Uh, so they're getting a section of Constantinople itself, a number of islands in the Greek, in the Peloponnesus. Um, and so that's a reconnection between Venice and Byzantium. Uh, now they lose that empire, that position in the Byzantium by 1262, but uh, that, that, that reinvigorates this connection. And if you go to Venice uh, today uh, on St. Mark's Church at San Marco, it, it's, it's covered with basically loot from uh, Constantinople taken in the Fourth Crusade in 1204, marbles and, and columns and the, the, the famous four bronze horses. Uh, all of that uh, is a kind of reconnection uh, with Constantinople that begins in the 13th century. Yeah, that um, yeah, the sack of Constantinople came up as well in the conversation with uh, Dr. Osborne and how that I can imagine. Yeah, would, yeah, yeah, and how that impacted um, Venice's um, Venice as a as a city. Um, okay, uh, let's talk uh, arts then in the Renaissance period it's kind of one of those um, mm-hmm. right kind of one of those uh, 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 proverbial you know <laughs> items when you when you mention Renaissance and, and the arts um, can you describe what the art scene was like in the Renaissance period in Venice and can you also uh, if possible contrast it to some degree with Florence because Florence is sort of the quintessential um, city that gets referenced with the Italian Renaissance period so what was the art scene like in Venice in the Renaissance period, and how would you contrast it with what was going on in uh, Florence? Okay, that's that's a very good question. In Florence, I, you find um, uh, patronage, that is, the people who are paying for arts, um, largely uh, from a, a small group of very wealthy uh, families who are in many ways competing among themselves. Um, they are... Uh, building palaces, they are hiring artists to um, uh, paint, to decorate those palaces, and they are hiring artists to uh, supply or decorate uh, private chapels. So um, that there's that level of competition, which is, is extraordinary. And, then, and, in, and in Florence, of course, they're, they're developing um, techniques that are basically about painting walls, fresco. Um, much of Florentine art, particularly in the 15th century, uh, is, is is paint on on wet plaster. Now, mm-hmm. frescoes don't work very well in Venice because it's too humid. Um, so Venice develops probably very precociously by the late 15th century oil painting. Uh, also, Venice, Florence, Florentines do that as well. But um, there is a strong influence from Northern Europe and Venice on, on oil painting and other rich layers of colors, which 
um, makes Florentine, uh, I mean, Venetian uh, art um, very coloristic. I think the art historians would tend to say that Florentine art in this period is much more interested in line uh, and design um, and geometry, uh, which is their uh, way of building upon the theories of the ancients. Venice is much more interested in color um, and uh, light and darkness uh, that is you can represent effectively with, with oil painting. Probably much more of the, the uh, patronage in Venice is institutional in the sense that it comes through churches or through what are confraternities, what is called a scuole. Um, there's certainly some rich families who, who do that, who also patronize the arts, but much of what we know is uh, much more institutional than in, than in Florence in that period. Um, uh, it's a little, in terms of style, and embracing uh, the, what we would see as Renaissance uh, ideas, it's a little late. It's lagging 40, 50 years behind Florence. But when it adopts, a, when Venetian painters adopt a, a Renaissance style, they're often looking to examples that come from the Byzantine East rather than the Roman uh, Empire. Um, they're they see themselves as having been direct heirs of the Roman Empire through Byzantium. And so there's a lot of, there's Greek models, um, Greek saints in Venice, um, and uh, as in the Greek church, there's much more emphasis on the Old Testament. So you have a church is in Venice dedicated to St. Moses, which you're not going to find very other, very many other places in, in Western Europe, but something you'd find in 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 the Byzantine Greek East. So I think that's mm. one of the big differences. Um, and uh, by the 16th century, the, the great Venetian artists are in enormous demand, uh, particularly in the rest of Europe, in Spain, Germany, et cetera, where many of them, like Titian, uh, get, get uh, commissions uh, from, from other places. So by the late 16th century, people, Europeans are traveling to Venice to see the art, uh, as well as to all the forms of entertainment there. Probably, probably more so than, than Venice or than Florence by that time. It's it's a late 16th century. It's a much more popular tourist destination, mm. um, uh, and Florence has to be kind of rediscovered somewhat later on. Um, yeah, and to clarify that, then, so you're suggesting that. Um, Venice became so Venice was a bit behind in terms of some of the artistic um, production uh, behind uh, Florence, right. but Venice was ahead in terms of uh, being a tourist destination. Oh, question, unquestionably, yes, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's very much a tourist destination. Uh, so people from Northern Europe would come to Venice and they'd go to Rome, and they may or may not go to Florence. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, and your, the, the answer you provided, uh, was, um, uh, very detailed around the, the, the art, the artists, the art answer, um, for anyone listening, that's interested in looking up, uh, and I'm, I'm interested in, in looking up, um, uh, a couple artists in this period from Venice, is there two or three artists that immediately come to mind that you would, 
encourage people to uh, uh, look up if they're interested in looking at their artwork? Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, the greatest is Titian. Mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> excuse me. And he, uh, what you really want to look at are some of his portraits, which were quite extraordinary. I mean, he captured through his use of oils um, the character in a way that no one else in the 16th century did. He lived for a long time. Uh, he spent time uh, in a lot of different places, but he's an extraordinary artist. Uh, the, the other one I think everybody ought to look at, uh, who's an unusual artist, is um, Tintoretto, um, who spent his whole career in Venice. He hardly ever went anywhere else. Painted very rapidly, uh, very uh, with with a style that is kind of almost a frenetic style, whereas Titian's is very carefully layered paint upon paint and very calculated. Tintoretto uh, wanted to be um, different and was very different. And if you look at his paintings carefully, you're going to see a lot of things that are like much like modern impressionism that comes back in, in the 19th century in France uh, uh, with the kind of just quick brushstrokes which create an impression of light on a tree or whatever. Um, and so they're very different styles um, mm -hmm. and, um, and equally powerfully uh, evocative. Um, uh, so the ones you want to see of, of Tintoretto uh, there's a series of paintings he did for one of the confraternities called the Scuola di San Rocco, and those are amazing, just amazing. Particularly his uh, his crucifixion. Um, it's a, it, these are something really worth taking a look at. Okay, um, I will for those listening. I'll drop um, those names that uh, Dr. Muir mentioned in the show notes on the ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode if anyone uh wants to look up some of these artists and see their artwork uh excellent thank you edward okay um can you can you take a moment and talk about the um and do you call do you call them islands or do you have a different name for them within venice islands you mean yeah you mean within the lagoon yeah yeah what, no, what term do you use islands. I mean, there's, okay there's there's the ones that are connected, okay, which is the Venice proper, and then there's the ones out in the further out of the lagoon, which are clearly islands. So yeah, I call them islands. Okay, all right. Um, Can you take a moment? So um, you know, Venice has the epithet of being the the you know the floating city, uh, or or different versions of of that. Can you take a moment and speak about um, the uh, the 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 development policy around the islands in the Renaissance period in terms of were they developing more islands? Were they um, satisfied with the islands that were uh, there at, at this point um, in the lagoon? And, and were they were they building them up in some some way? Were they making changes? Can you can you share more about just the, the what was going on with the governments thinking about their islands uh, in the lagoon? Uh, so this is this is a really terrific question, and I think it comes to the core of what Venice is, is really about. Mm -hmm. If you look at a map uh, of Italy, uh, there once was a great city of Ravenna, uh, not far from Venice, to the south of Venice, and the, to the east, uh, Aquileia, both of which were lagoon cities uh, in 
the Roman Empire. Uh, and what happened to both of them is the, the rivers, siltation in the rivers, uh, filled up the lagoons. So that Ravenna is miles from the sea now, when it was once a port. And Aquileia uh, is not miles, but it's surrounded by non-navigable bits of water. So it became evident in the 14th century that the same thing was happening to Venice. Hmm. Uh, and it was no longer going to have a port, which was its lifeblood. Uh, and so what the Venetian government instituted is quite remarkable. Um, they decided to move the rivers that flew, flowed into the lagoon to prevent the lagoon from silting up from uh, the deforestation that was going on in the countryside. And they did. They moved the Brentha River and the Sile River to, to, out, to let out some other place in the Adriatic. The net result of which was they transformed the lagoon from a freshwater body into a saltwater body that it is still to this day, and which, of course, is the source of its flooding problems and plague with flooding problems. They were very aware of this threat, um, and the, they had one, another city within the Venetian lagoon called Torcello, which had, by the 14th century, long been abandoned, but which also was silted up, uh, so they could see the consequences of that. So what you have, I think, in Venice um, is this... A major what we would see as infrastructure project, which required considerable amount of cooperation to achieve and governmental, uh, if not control, at least coordination about how it happened. Um, and so as, after that, then there is an ongoing to this day, uh, I could call it a battle almost to sustain the ecology of that lagoon. Keeping uh, strong barriers to the to the Adriatic Sea, making sure that the canals are dredged on a regular basis um, and uh, deep enough for ships. Um, the number of islands available uh, is pretty much constant. Some are abandoned for various reasons. Porcello was abandoned. Others were abandoned because uh, their function was no longer necessary. Um, the most interesting example there was uh, San Lazaro, which was for people with uh, uh, um, a leper, a leper's colony. And when leprosy started to disappear, that that was abandoned, and now it's turned into a, an, an oddly turned into a place for foreign students to um, uh, find residence while they're studying in Venice. Um, another island which was adopted was is, uh, was adopted by the Armenian Church, uh, and is a major center of Armenian studies to this day is Armenian refugees going back to uh, the, the 17th century, 16th and 17th century, who went there. Right. So the territory is pretty fixed, but it's unstable in terms of its ecology, let's put it that way. Interesting. And, and back then, how did you adopt a, an island, like the, Ar the Armenian uh, organization? Was that, they, did they pay for it? Like, how, do you, how did they adopt an island? Well, I think uh, I, they pay for it. They bought it. Uh, okay. Because Venice was interested, of course, in supporting the Armenians because the Armenians would be Christian allies against the Muslim Turks. Uh, they bought it. They got our bargain price for it um, and were able to move um, uh, a, a lot of Armenian documents and uh, sacred uh, religious objects uh, 
uh, to Venice, where it, it still is, and there's a major uh, publishing center for Armenian in Armenian literature uh, on this island in in the in the lagoon. Okay, yeah, and you provided an excellent answer with the um, the the explaining a bit more of the infrastructure projects that were going on. So give or give or take um, in in contemporary times with the number of islands that are, that are there currently, when you compare it to the number of islands that would have been uh, uh, somewhat equally developed in the uh, in this period of time, the Renaissance, are we talking about the same number of islands? Well, in in a sense, yes, except for there's a fair amount of landfill in the 20th century. Um, particularly uh, around the train station where they built um, port cities for much bigger ships than would have been available otherwise. And there is um, on the the west end of the lagoon where the, there's two ports nowadays called Marguera and, and uh, Mestre. And those are major petrochemical centers. And um, there's been landfill in that area just for building up of industry. But within the rest of the lagoon, no, it's pretty constant. Okay. Um, and to work our way into some closing uh, questions, so I want to ask in a moment about what's known about the population, um, just to give you a heads up, uh, the re- religious milieu and then um, currency, and then we can work our way to mm-hmm. completing the conversation. Um, so do scholars know, you know, again, it's not too, too far away. We're a few, few hundred years back, but do scholars know what the estimated population was in uh, in the city of Venice in the Renaissance period? Yeah, we have a pretty good idea. Mm-hmm. It was at its height before the Black Death, probably about 150,000 people, maybe 140, something like that. It loses uh, uh, around half the population in 1348, um, and then recurrently has plagues come back. Um, and they do so right into dramatic and disastrous plague in 1630 when it loses a third of the population again. Um, so the, the population all during the Renaissance period is, is kind of a, a wavy period, a wavy curve. Uh, the, the Venetians themselves were never able to uh, repopulate it through natural, natural birth. They brought in immigrants. And so it was always um, a center of, of recent immigrants uh, who repopulated the city largely for economic purposes. They could get jobs there. And there are whole sectors of the city where immigrants from certain re- nearby regions settled from uh, Slovenia, from Friuli, uh, et cetera. So that um, it's, it's, it has this kind of interestingly mixed com- uh, ethnic components in it. There's a lot of Albanians there, a lot of Greeks there, but just famously the Jewish quarter. Uh, the ghetto is a Venetian institution. Um, and, and, and those people uh, keep the population up fairly, you know, it varies probably from 100,000 to 150,000 during this whole period. Mm. Uh, it'll eventually start to be outstripped by Northern European cities such as Paris and London. Go, become much bigger, but uh, it's 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 reasonably stable. But you have to look at a a, a a population gyrations rather than a curve. It's going up and going down, and going up and going mm-hmm. down. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the the first 
um, period of that of the the plague, and that was the um, the Black Death, right? Right. Okay. How many how many years approximately uh, occurred when they lost fifty percent of their population? Like over how many years would the uh, plague have been going on? Oh, you'd lose. You could lose most of the people in two weeks. I mean, it's very fast. Now, what would happen is uh, when it hits, it hits horrendously. Um, and then it, the Black Death or the plague, uh, we're still disputing exactly all what it was. It was probably bubonic plague, but there's other diseases that are coming in. It seems to re- reoccur about every 20 years, uh, almost every generation, uh, that you would have a minor or a greater uh, uh break out of the black death of, of the plague so it's you know 1348 1400 is a big year 1572 1630 uh those are the big ones um so yeah, but once when it's there it, it it does its dirty work really fast okay yeah in different conversations um in the periphery when i've had conversations about various wars and battles on this show uh, you hear sort of in more indirect comments about concerns that um, militaries would have around the plague and so on and so forth. So you really, as you're digging into historical topics in the in in the Mediterranean, you really realize quickly that um, uh, things like the plague was something that uh, was around in in these periods uh, and was uh, an every, almost an everyday part of people's lives for quite some time. Oh, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, we'd have other, I mean, there'd be typhus plagues and cholera, you know, that would come in and some would often get confused with the black death. They wouldn't often always know exactly what they had, what was going on, uh, but it was a reality. I mean, a real reality. So we think of our own moment here with COVID, uh, but uh, they had it all. I mean, every generation probably would have experienced something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, so those last two kind of material uh, topics, um, re- religion and uh, cur- currency. So what was the religious environment like in Venice in this period of time? Well, obviously, Venice is officially a Catholic country, uh, but it has its its body, its, its relic of, of the uh, evangelist St. Mark, one of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this gives it a certain claim for a special uh, relationship with Christianity. Um, and this claim, which is a very important part of the Venetian self-identity, uh, because they have these relics, makes it possible then to claim a certain autonomy from the Roman Catholic Church, particularly from the control of the Pope. And this reaches ahead in... Uh, 1605, 1606, when there's a big dispute between Venice and the Pope, and the Pope places Venice under the interdict, and they cannot celebrate the seven sacraments, and people can't be buried or married or receive the last rites. It's, 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 it's a big conflict. Uh, and Venice basically toughs it out uh, and says, you cannot, you cannot influence and control our church. Uh, within the uh, territories of Venice, which is what the papacy was trying to do. Um, so it, it, I would have to, I have to say it's Catholicism uh, with a great deal of autonomy 
and uh, a pretty intense religiosity uh, in the city. There's processions all the time. The relationship between the Virgin Mary and the, the citizens is, is quite intense. Um, there are statues all over the city of saints and the Virgin Mary in, in particular. Um, I once wrote a piece called the, 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 A Virgin on the Street Corner, which was why were there so many images of virgins all over the city? And I once did a whole um, kind of campaign to catalog them. And of course, they're very common outside of hospitals, uh, poor, poor houses and places where people really needed uh, saintly help. Um, so I would say it's, it's quite intense. Of course, it has a large established Jewish community. Uh, and that Jewish community, uh, had, there would be there were like four or five synagogues. Uh, there's a, an Ashkenazi and a Sephardic and a, a Spanish one and a Levantine one. Uh, so uh, and Jews could practice with complete uh, freedom um, their their religion. Um, there is a Turkish trading house. Uh, called the Fondaco de Toreski, no, excuse me, de Turki, and they presumably could practice, uh, is they had a prayer room in, in that root place. Protestants are the most dangerous. They're the ones I'm most worried about because there's a fear that Protestants would proselytize among the Catholic population. So they, English and Dutch Protestants would have to have services aboard a ship. The Germans had their own place where if they were Lutheran, they could uh, practice if they wanted you know, pray there. Um, so it, it's a very religious place, but one that is relatively tolerant. So Armenians can have their church for services. Greeks have their church services. There's a lot of, a lot of religious diversity. Okay. Uh, was there a reasonably... Um, was there a reasonable size of Islamic people? And what was the tolerance level around um, Islamic worship in Venice, in the Renaissance period? Well, it had to be hidden. Uh, there's, they're, they're worried about it. Uh, but, and so it had to be within closed doors. But there, you're not going to have uh, uh, a call to prayers, that's a public call to prayers in Venice that you would have in a real Muslim country. Um, but there is a, there, what looks like what is, I, my, one of my grad students has looked at the, at the plans. Uh, there's certainly a prayer room it's, and the plans is called the mosque in the, the, the Turkish warehouse. That would probably be the only place that I can imagine happened. Uh, um, so, um, yes, that, that, that Islam would have been a problem for them. Okay. Any any sense? Do scholars have any sense of what the percentage of the population would have been Muslim in in Venice in the Renaissance period? I, I think that there probably wouldn't have been any. I think that what there would have been would be Muslim traders from other places, uh, Muslim merchants uh, who were itinerant coming in and out. But there wouldn't now that there might have been a significant number of Muslim slaves uh, and. Um, who had been captured at sea or had been uh, sold into slavery. Um, and um, we know they were there, uh, but they're not really 
residents in a traditional sense, they're, they're in a special category uh, as slaves and to what degree they could practice is really unknown. Uh, so there's a lot of Christian slaves in North Africa and there's a lot of Muslim slaves in uh, Italy and um, they're there, um, but they don't have uh, their organized, any form of organized worship available to them. Okay. And that last topic point, currency. Um, can you speak a little bit about um, the currency that was being used? Was it a currency economy? Was it still a bartering economy? If it was more of a currency economy, what is known about the material that was used for the currency, where it was minted, uh, what the confidence level in the currency was, etc.? Uh, okay, the, the currency is it's called the uh, the ducat, uh, and with a picture of the current Doge on it, stamped on it. It's a gold coin, um, and the mint is, was a, a prominent building. It's right across the the, the piazzetta from uh, the Ducal Palace, so it's right up front there. It's now part of the Marciana Library, um, and so it was, a, it was a famous and important. Uh, stable currency it was wide along with the floor and was seen uh, much like the dollar and the pound might have been seen in the 20th century as the kind of uh, the, the coin of exchange now um so they're there and people have you know bags of of, of this but the the, the economy worked much more off, off of what we would see as credit um mm. and and loans and extended uh, bartering, not bartering so much, but it's extended uh, letters of credit, as they were called. So you would, you would exchange, there's a kind of deposit some, some gold coins and get a letter of credit at a bank. And then uh, you'd take that with you to trade somewhere else because you don't want to be going around the world with, with gold in your pocket. And um, that letter of credit becomes... Um, um, a matter of speculation. You could buy and sell letters of credit, much like people would do now with currency speculation, to, to speculating on exchange rates. So most of the economy um, was wrapped up in credit, not in actual currency. Uh, and um, well, as is a modern economies, modern economies are <laughs> running off mm -hmm. of credit. They're leveraged all mm -hmm. over the place, mm -hmm. um, and that that made it, that helps it function. The interesting part about these letters of credit, all this credit going about, is that um, it had a strong social component. That is to say, uh, if you went to a shop and you um, you, you had a, a running line of credit with a shop to buy, I don't know, whatever you wanted to buy, salt, let's say, on a regular basis. And one day the shop owner said, I, you've got to pay me now, no longer. I can't sustain you anymore. That shop owner would probably lose all of his other business because it's this network of, of, of mutual obligations through credit that kept the whole society held together. Um, and so uh, it, the, the social part of, of currency is even more interesting than the economic part of it because uh, you didn't want to call in a loan. Um, so if, we, if you or I went back and looked at the 
the account books of some of these uh, small businesses, mm-hmm. it looks like they were insolvent all the time because they mm-hmm. had all these people who owed them money that they never collected on. And that was in some ways the point. Uh, other people gave them credit and everyone is giving each other credits and that keeps things going. Mm. If that makes sense. It does, yeah. The Canadian, uh, Canadian Indian restaurant that I eat at a lot in Toronto, I feel operates sometimes like that. One time their interact was down, so I had to come back and eat there about three times a week. I go back and uh, and I go to pay and the nice gentleman opens up their uh, uh, one of those um, little black books that hold the receipt, yeah. that, right? That they give to customers. Yeah, yeah. And he, he had to have had yeah. 20 or 30 receipts. And I said, what, like, what are, what are all those? And he's like, oh yeah, those are customers that still, you know, just owe, owe me money. And, and, and it just seemed like a normal, kind of a normal thing for this, um, uh, for, yeah. for this restaurant. That's fascinating. That's exactly it. Right? That's exactly it. <laughs> but but it's just yeah. the attitude. But the attitude is that that's normal. Like these, he's established right. in the community. He knows these people. Eventually, um, they'll probably pay. <laughs> right. right. And his suppliers are probably you know allowing him to uh, you know go on credit too. So. <laughs> Oh, this is good. Yeah. So let's let's wrap up the conversation, Edward, where we started. And it's uh, for the sake of time, of course, it's completely fine to um, summarize this. By the end of the Renaissance period, so the 17th century, um, what what would the uh, the demarcation of the land be? Is it is it still as expansive as it was at the start of the the um, the period? And what do you think uh, people knew Venice most for by the end of the period? Well, the land base is pretty much the same by the 17th century venice has lost some territories in Mm -hmm. in the you know in in the greek islands and has lost crete Mm -hmm. but uh what venice is more and more known for by the 17th century is uh entertainment um and it is uh, people coming to enjoy carnival to gamble and then uh i think most importantly uh opera the first commercial opera what we would see as musical theater uh appears in venice in 1637 and uh, opera takes off um after that uh, so it was a time when you a woman could never appear on a stage in england for example and they never women parts women's parts in shakespeare are played by small boys in Venice, you could go to Venice and see a woman singing on stage. It was just not something you would hear anywhere else in Europe. So this could be enormously popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are lots of commercial theaters who do what commercial theaters still do. They commission works. They have, you know, busts and booms and blockbusters and famous stars. Uh, uh, and so that's what I think becomes more and more known for. Uh, as a kind of entertainment uh, complex, a kind of Vegas of the late Renaissance. It's a little crude, but that's that's what's going on. It's been really enjoyable speaking with you, Edward. You're a fountain of knowledge on this topic. Thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. Take care. Okay, everybody. The couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Muir wrote as examples... 
civic ritual in Renaissance Venice and the culture wars of the late Renaissance, Skeptics, Libertines, and Opera. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Edward and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thanks a lot. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.